Hi, my name is Saul and this is the story of London. Our tale of the city is currently mired in the depths of the 10th century. The nation around London was at war, a war that seemed endless and all-encompassing. But while almost all the fighting was taking place to the north, London was, like everywhere, profoundly impacted by the changes this conflict was causing. In the last episode, we looked at an overview of this confrontation between Wessex and the region to the north that would be in time be called the Danelaw. The people there were mostly identical to the people in Wessex, but during this century a true sense of them versus us was being established, one that London and its residents partook in. It is in this process of both strategic and also cultural warfare that London was to begin to climb up the ladder of importance in the settlements in England. It was here that the foundations were laid for it to become the powerful city that it would become, the capital of the nation. Yet these foundations did not come from within London itself. They came from outside the city. Indeed, they were the result of the actions of people to whom Londoners would have considered foreigners in one way or another, and they happened by accident. Let's explore how. Welcome then to the 20th episode of The Story of London, Laying the Foundations. As the 10th century went on its merry way, London was a busy little town. There were goods to buy and to sell and to trade, animals to husband and butcher, crops to be cultivated and harvested, items to be crafted, a bridge to be built, taxes to be collected, lives to lead. But just because it was seemingly a long way away from the incessant warfare that was plaguing England elsewhere does not mean it was utterly immune to it. And sometimes that war did come close indeed. Now, in the process of telling the narrative story of the city, there is a much wider history I'm going to have to simplify or even overlook. It cannot be helped, I'm afraid. But this approach allows me to spot specific events in the wider world that impact upon London and demands we pay attention to them. One example is a small moment in the ongoing wars that is easily overlooked but could be really significant to the story of London. It is an event that took place in 917 and the background to it is the changing relationship between London and its old nation, Mercia. Mercia had by now become Schrodinger's nation. It was both dead and extinct, and yet very much alive and an ongoing geopolitical force in Britain, at the exact same time. How could it be both? Well, Mercia no longer produced kings, and had not since the mysterious disappearance of King Seowulf off that land. King Alfred had allowed the northern half of the land be taken by the remnants of the army of Guthrum, creating a hinterland known to us today as the Five Boroughs, while he simply annexed the rest of it. But he did not annex it properly. Alfred granted it to a man called Ethelred, his new son-in-law, a mysterious Mercian who married his daughter Ethelfleda. And we know Ethelred from previous episodes, he had led the forces of London out in at least one military operation and had been designated the ruler of the city of London for the duration of his lifetime, after which it would revert to the King of Wessex direct rule, which is exactly what happened. 
And for London, all this meant that after Ethelred died, it appeared that the links to Mercia, which London had been basically sharing since the year 666, had finally broken. Now, the reason I'm mentioning all of this is because in 917, we see Aethelfleda, the Lady of Mercia, and her brother, King Edward the Elder, engage in what could best be described as the Reconquista of Mercia, but that London's focus was elsewhere. You see, in that year, Edward the Elder had raised the Fjord, the great citizen army of Wessex, and commanded any and all troops who could to assemble at a certain location by a certain date. The forces who managed to make it, and there were a lot who did, made up the Anglesin army that won a great victory at Thamesford. But this is a whole separate story that's got nothing to do with the Tale of London. It should be noted, however, that not all the feared of the regions could make it to Edward to partake in this battle. And as it was, another full Anglesin army was raised in the summer of 917. This was a combined feud of the men of Kent and the men of Surrey and the men of Western Essex. And while it never mentioned specifically because it bordered on all three of these regions, I feel this force would have included the men of London, the London sin, the London kind. They, like any who lived in a Wessex Burr, would have been obligated to provide men to a feud and would have been part of this southeastern force. Now, the records do not name the leader of this force, and there is every indication that what followed was organised and done by lower-ranked leaders, you know, minor nobility, perhaps. Now, the, the records show that soon after King Edward had achieved his victory at Thamesford, this new force simply marched west into Viking territory. Most of Essex was, at this time, under the dominion of the Viking-ruled Kingdom of East Anglia. So this was basically an invasion, one driven not by self-defence. In fact, it was probably driven by spite. Spite? Well, we know from previous chapters, the residents of Kent and London had some serious beef with the residents of Danish Essex. This probably stemmed from the latter years of the reign of Alfred. As we discussed, we have records of Viking armies under Haston raiding Kent and then sailing safely away to Essex. And before that, we know that the treaty between Alfred and Guthrum had broken down in Kent with the Vikings besieging Rochester and then the Kentish men retaliating by launching their own Viking raids into Essex. There was no love lost between the communities south of the River Thames and those north of the River Thames. And we know London shared this intolerance, given it had also destroyed Essex-based Viking settlements in Benfleet and Hartford. London harboured the deep anger towards the Viking-controlled lands of Essex, and as such, their mentality matched the predisposition of their neighbours in Kent. So it was a body of like-minded, angry souls that the London residents most probably marched out with amidst the giant army of the southeast. And logistics say the most sensible way to invade Kent would have been to cross the Thames at London and then just march straight into that county. Once that force entered the Kingdom of East Anglia, they acted with alacrity 
and ferocious intent. They marched straight towards one of the biggest centres of the region, Colchester. The East Anglian defenders had not been expecting this force, and not only that, they were not expecting the brutality of it, because the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle is very honest as to what happened next. The army of Kent, Surrey and London, quote, went to Colchester and beset the town and fought thereon till they took it and slew all the people and seized all that was wherein except those men who escaped therefrom over the wall, unquote. It was a bloodbath. Everyone who resisted was killed. By the sounds of it, even those who didn't resist were enslaved. I mean, it clearly says the only people who were not seized had basically jumped over the walls. It was a systematic destruction of the town any which way you look at it. And the fighting in Essex wasn't over yet. You see, just after this attack, a newly arrived force of actual Viking raiders appeared off the coast of East Anglia, and the local residents enticed them to join their side and launch a counter-attack. But it wasn't upon the giant army in Colchester, though. No, these Vikings were invited to attack the newly constructed Burr at Malden. Here, however, they found a well-defended fortress and they were unable to take it. And then reinforcements suddenly arrived to break their siege. Where had these reinforcements come from? It could be argued from just 17 miles away at Colchester. I believe it was elements of that blood-soaked army of the southeast, seeking simply to increase their body count. The Vikings fled, but the forces of Malden and their new reinforcements caught up with them, and in the following fight, quote, many hundreds, unquote, of Vikings were killed. Soon after all this excitement, however, the term of service that dictated for how long any feud would be in the field would have ended, and the Londoners and the men of Kent and of Surrey and of Essex would have returned to their homes. But so organised was this Angleson state that it only ever called up half the available men to serve in the army at any given time, meaning King Edward the Elder was now able to summon a fresh feud, and with this force, he marched south and consolidated these new lands. And before the end of that year, the residents of East Anglia submitted to Edward as king. And now, just now, for the first time in its history, Saxon London existed where every inch of the Thames, both sides of the bank, the riverway that was its very lifeblood, was all ruled by a single nation. There were no sub-kingdoms and no fear of divisions. I mean, not since the reign of mighty Offa the Great had London known such stability on the riverway to the town. This brought a much-needed stability to the region. And as attention of the war shifted northwards, so London began to no longer feel the urgency of the drumbeat of the conflict it could return to being a trade town when it was not, you know, hanging anyone who stole from any resident whatsoever, even if they were children. But as Edward died and his firstborn son, Æthelstan, took the throne in 924, London began to grow in importance and prosperity. But much of this was by accident, born out of unique circumstances. Æthelstan, you see, was not a popular king, not in Wessex, 
not in the heartland of his own nation. Indeed, there is reason to believe that the nobility of Wessex disliked him immensely. So much so, for example, that the, the bishop of the ancestral centre of his kingdom, Winchester, refused to turn up to his actual coronation. And it's easy to see why they would dislike him. Æthelstan was a child of Edward's first marriage, but he'd been sent away and raised in Mercia by his aunt, Æthelfleda, from a very young age. He was seen as a stranger to the powers that be in Wessex. And as such, he could not look to the traditional ways of running Wessex that his father Edward or his grandfather Alfred had used. He needed to innovate how he did things, and by extension, he was someone who looked to the periphery of his kingdom to consolidate his rule. I'm trying in this podcast to focus on London, and so won't be focusing on the utterly amazing story of what Æthelstan did, especially in the first three years of his reign, where basically he gains the loyalty of the kingdoms of Jorvik, Cumbria, Scotland, and puts down a rebellion against them by the Britons and Wales and Cornwall. But he'd only been on the throne for three years before he was just able to style himself Rex Angelorum, the King of England. Now, it was called England as a way to appease his new northern subjects who would have resisted being, caught, being ruled by, you know, Wessex or Saxon land. And above all, he sought not just to rule the vast new lands he had nominally taken, he wanted to hold them for a long time. Now, so obviously... I'm going to be cutting out huge amounts of detail of his amazing story. But there are some facets of his extraordinary reign that we do need to focus on because they impacted upon London. One we must describe is also the most pivotal moment in his reign, the Battle of Bernabeu in 937. This was a terrifying moment for the king's new nation. A vast alliance of the armies of the Scots, the Strathclydians, and above all, the Norse-Gale diaspora of the Irish Sea had come together, probably driven and instigated by the Scottish king due to him being humiliated by uh, Æthelstan a few years earlier, but I'll get into that. Anyway, the three vast armies invaded England, thousands of men all committed to the task of breaking apart this new hegemonic state. Æthelstan issued a summons, slowly gathering up what men he could to defend his nation, and we know that the residents of London answered this call and marched north. They travelled across many miles of unfamiliar territory. Well, we do not know the exact location of the battle, it probably took place far to the north of Britain, an alien land to a resident of Westkeep. When gathered, the London contingent, probably due to either habit or perhaps as an indicator of how some things never change, was actually placed within the Mercian Fjord under the command of a man we think was called Turkettle. Turkettle and the Londoners had been placed on the left-hand side of the battle line, with the West Saxons under their king in the middle and a contingent of Viking mercenaries on the other side. The forces of the Angleson, however, were deeply outnumbered, by the invaders, and opposing the Mercian and the Londons at the start of the battle, the army of the Scots, led by King Constantine and his son. It promised to be a hard fight, and it was. The battle itself was a horrendously bloody affair, but for their part, the Mercians and Londoners had, after 
hours of vicious, slow-moving shield wall versus shield wall type fighting, which is kind of similar to a rugby scrum with additional stabbing, they'd managed to slay the son of King Constantine, whose death caused the Scottish forces to lose heart, fall back, and eventually rout. This allowed the Mercian and Londoners then to turn to flank the Irish Vikings under Olaf Gofrithson in the middle and support Æthelstan and his brother Edmund. Olaf eventually fled and Æthelstan was victorious. Thousands of the enemy were slain. It was an epic victory, arguably the most important battle in English history until a much smaller but more significant geopolitically one happened in the year 1066. Anyway, Æthelstan during his reign had become king of a new nation. He had taken the north. But it's worth remembering that his great-grandfather, Egbert, had supposedly, according to his propaganda, subjugated and taken Mercia and Northumbria as well. But he lost it all within a single year. Æthelstan couldn't afford that. It just survived a terrible battle which almost saw it all gone. He wanted his lands to be prosperous and to remain under the control of his family. And he did this by various methods, many of which accidentally benefited London. So... One strand was to enhance and expand the economy of a state. Because of this, London entered a period of increased economic activity. We know Æthelstan tried to ban any and all tax evasion by making a new law. Any trade deal in England that came to a value of over 20 pence was now forced to take place in a designated trade zone, aka you had to do it at the local market. London immediately benefited. Someone from nearby Middlesex who wanted to sell a horse to his neighbour, he was now mandated by law to make his way to London and there conduct the deal. We know this increased coinage production during Æthelstan's reign. Now from the records we do have, we know that London had eight mints or moneyers working in the town during his time in office. This the most of any town in Britain outside of the new showcase settlement of Chester, which Aethelflader had recently constructed. We know the mints of London were producing high-quality pennies with the likeness of Edward the Elder upon them until his death in 924. And we also know that as Aethelstan took over, London's position of one of the chief cities in the land financially began to grow. Coin production, the economic bedrock of the nation, was at the time based around five towns of roughly equal status. You had London, Winchester and Canterbury in the south, with Chester and York in the north. So it appears that because of the hostility of Winchester towards Æthelstan, we began to get a slow favouring of other towns. Canterbury, for example, gained more attention as the king sought to bypass the influence of the Bishop of Winchester by offering lands and gifts to his boss, the Archbishop of Canterbury. York also became crucial, but in time that would slip from the fingers of the kingdom. So in the south, London and Canterbury began to become more important economically, at least in terms of coin production and trade with the continent. It wasn't a huge amount, but incremental growth began about now. And at the same time, London began to grow not just in economic importance, but in political importance. And this, I feel, was due to the influence of one man, the Bishop of London, a man called Theodred. 
Bishop Theodred, we think, was not a native to London or even to England. Either he or his parents were born in Europe. Crucially, Theodred was not just Bishop of London. He was a close confidant and ally of King Aethelstan, and so much so, he even accompanied him north to the Battle of Barnabria. Perhaps the bishop had travelled up with the London Fjord. Theodred's rise to such a high position, I think, did much to elevate London in the mind of the king and in the mind of the residents. That's their bishop as one of the king's most trusted advisers. Yet it also reveals something else. London no longer had a noble lord or leader to follow. There was no single ruler of London. And as such, the town increasingly became loyal to its bishops. This, for me anyway, marks the birth of something profoundly important in the story of London. It was beginning to become a town of great religious devotion. I mean, sure, London was a Christian and had been for ages, but the foundations of a more passionate face seem to have emerged from the time of Bishop Theodred. We, we know it was a centre of veneration for the Saint Swithin, but there was more to it than that. Look, as way too illustrated, there's this great story from the year 940 or so about a figure called Saint Cathro. In 940, he wasn't a saint yet. He appeared to have been a rather devout Scottish monk who had been trained by a bunch of rather devout Irish monks and then decided he wanted to leave Scotland and travel south across England and on to meet rather devout monks in Europe. The account of his journey, written much later in time by rather devout monks elsewhere, talks about him being honoured by Constantine, the wily king of Alba, and by the lords of Strathclyde, and then by the powers in the Danelaw. And eventually, Cathro came upon London. And here, he was hosted by a pious Londoner called Egfrith, whose home was located near the Thames. Cathro was only newly arrived, when London was struck by a sudden fire, in the face of such a terrible inferno, the story goes, Egfrith simply remembered the drill, in case of emergency, break glass and unleash saint. Egfrith of London employed Cathro to intercede and save the town, and the holy Cathro did so. He placed himself between the flames and some nearby homes and asked God himself for intercession. The flame stopped and lo, the city was saved. And while I could not, possibly besmirch the honesty of a bunch of monks from Mertz who were just trying to justify why Cathro should be declared a saint, I include this story as it is indicative that by now London was becoming increasingly passionately Christian. It was becoming a place where miracles took place. So what have we got? We have a town with growing economic clout increased political gravitas, fierce loyalty to defend against invaders, and increasing religious devotion. We're beginning to see the seeds of medieval London here, the shape of the city to come, but there was one other factor that caused the rise of London, and this involves the sea. If you remember in our accounts of the Viking invasions of 894, I described how London had made a thing about gaining a small fleet. A number of captured Viking ships from the fortress and Benfleet had been used to bring back treasures and slaves from that base. These ships had then been involved in later operations against Hartford, perhaps, and London could have looted even more ships from there after the Vikings abandoned that settlement. In all ways, then, by the year 900, London was known as a Wessex town 
that had its own ships. And this is important. If it had ships, it had men needed to crew these things. Experts with sail and tiller. Men who would live in London, able to maintain and sail the damn things. Now, we cannot say if the ships remained in service for just five years, or ten years, or forty years. We cannot say if these were the only ships around. In fact, the sources for this era are remarkably silent on the construction of ships, the crewing of ships, and the maintenance of ships. And yet we know that during the reign of Aethelstan, that the new state of England had a fleet, and not a small one. Indeed, we know it became a crucial factor in Aethelstan's prestige. Look, in future chapters, as we track the importance of London in early English fleet dispositions, we will see that time and again it would be the centre of the fleet-based operations by later Anglo-Saxon kings of England. I honestly believe that this role started during the reign of Aethelstan. Maybe it's because it had ships from the era of Alfred. Maybe it's because London was close to Kent and we know they had ships they used to defend the coasts. And the reason I'm mentioning all of this is because simply there was this massive seafaring military tradition in the reign of Aethelstan that is often overlooked and really should not be. In 934, King Aethelstan led a large sea-based invasion up the east coast of the island into the lands of Scotland. This short campaign humiliated Constantine of Alba, and this is why he probably tried to get revenge a few years later by instigating that huge alliance. But by invading via a fleet, the English army was able to reach as far north as Aberdeenshire, and the fleet itself reached Caithness, where by all accounts the Viking descendants of northern Scotland received a rough surprise as the English fleet Viking the living hell out of them. We see King Aethelstan's increased sea power in his foreign relations. The English fleet, it could be argued, was busier in the south than in the north. One of the fascinating aspects of Aethelstan's court was the number of young European nobles who grew up there with the English king acting like a foster father figure. Both the future Louis IV of the Franks and Duke Alan of Brittany had been raised in Aethelstan's home. In both their cases, English ships helped try to restore these men to their lands. But there was more. Aethelstan, we know, probably used the ships to purge the sea of Viking raiders. The account of Viking attacks upon British shores just seems to drop off the scale during his era. And this is perhaps the origin of one of the most unlikely alliances ever. King Harald Fairhair of Norway, the great mythic unifier of Norwegian lands, who probably only ever ruled part of Norway as opposed to the entire place, supposedly he made a great alliance with Aethelstan and cemented this by sending him a dragon ship mounted with a gold-plated dragon head and purple sails. But there was more to it than this. He sent one of his supposedly 20 sons, a boy named Harkon, to be brought up in the English court, alongside the likes of Louis and Alan of Brittany, which begs the question, why would he do this? Why would a king of Norway go out of his way to ally with Aethelstan? 
Simply put, the emergence of this imperial ruling the entire island state of England under Aethelstan was an explosive development upon the European stage, turning the island of Britain from a backwater into somewhere surprising and to pay attention to. Nowhere else in Europe were the Scandinavian diaspora raiders being so soundly trounced. This surprising re-evaluation of England culminated in the marriage between the son of Henry the Fowler and Aethelstan's sister, that son would grow up to become Otto I, the first great Etonian Holy Roman Emperor. But more than that, this union allowed something very unique to happen. And here's where we focus on London again, and Theodred, the Germanic bishop of the town. See, Theodred was ideally placed to capitalise upon these new links between Aethelstan's court and the Germanic lands of Henry. What the wedding did was allow Aethelstan recruit a massive influx of European and Germanic churchmen into England. These were men trained to read and write, educated monks and priests and therefore experts in law and administration. Under the direction of a man like Theodred, Aethelstan was able to use these men to consolidate control over his new kingdom. How so? Well, consider this. Aethelstan's grandfather and father and the previous kings of Wessex had all toured their lands. The king's court was literally that, a court. The king would travel everywhere, judging cases, collecting taxes, enforcing laws, reminding the local nobles he is still the king. Aethelstan could not do that. His lands were vast. He needed to remain focused on York and Northumbria and the Northern Mercian territories in order to cement his rule over the region, which would have been fine, I suppose, but he also wanted to enforce his rule over the heartland of Essex, you know, without having to visit such a openly hostile area. And he wanted to increase his presence in East Anglia or in Wales or elsewhere, but without having to take his court there personally. The easiest way to do this? Law codes. Aethelstan became famed as the first king who reformed English law so comprehensively. He wrote six new law codes covering almost every aspect of life in his new country. And that influx of Germanic monks, men trained in administration and legal debate, they allowed him implement these laws without him having to be there. As we approach 960 then, when Aethelstan died, we now have a firmer grip on what that king had done for London. He was both an outsider and an insider, a king of Wessex raised in Mercia. He had placed Theodred, the Germanic cleric, who would oversee the reform of the church in East Anglia to make it compatible with the new English state, as Bishop of London, either directly or indirectly, this had placed greater emphasis upon London as being one of the pillars of the state. Economically, it was arguably the second richest town in the kingdom. The fact Aethelstan also sought to focus so much outside of the heartland of Wessex saw London and a few other places get a lift from this. And given its status as a coin-making hub, this gave them an instant advantage. And it is the expansion of naval power that I think really begins to allow London grow. It seems to have been the first home of the English fleet, a powerful force recognised by the King of Norway as a thing imperial. And this was at the exact time the nation London found itself in was now larger and more powerful than it had ever been before. These foundations 
became the bedrock upon which London was to grow into, which was lucky, because peace, real peace, was elusive, and the seemingly endless wars which plagued the land were not even close to being ended. And that's it for today. As always, if you look in the description of this episode, you'll find a link to the rough script I used and I'm using now. And it's freely shared for anyone who wants to read along as well as listen along. And it's got pictures and maps and things I found along the way while researching it. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, I do so hope you enjoyed it. And if this is your 20th time listening to the podcast, I do so hope you enjoyed it. If you did, um, please leave a like or a five-star review, as this will hopefully allow this show gain more listeners. And I'd really like more listeners. I mean, I can't be the only person with OCD and the desire to follow the history of London in great detail. Yeah, don't answer that. Anyway, enough of this. I'll see you next week for another chapter in the story of London. Thank you.